This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Season 6, Episode 8, The 25th Amendment, Removal of a President from Office. January 6th, 2021, marked the second time in American history that the U.S. Capitol was breached by opposing forces. The first and only time it occurred until yesterday was during the War of 1812. The British stormed the capital of our young republic, sacked the building, and burned it to the ground. The existing capital complex in Washington, D.C. was built during the Civil War in the 1860s. It is sacred ground to Americans. Our enemies recognize its symbolic importance to the nation. The 9-11 terrorist had planned to crash United Airlines Flight 93 into that very same capital. Instead, Flight 93 crashed in a field in Pennsylvania, saving the capital and its occupants. In addition to housing the legislative branches of government, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. It is almost a holy of holies, as it were, in an otherwise very secular nation. In a way, it's like the equivalent of our pantheon. Our most eminent citizens are honored by lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Most recently, the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the first woman and the first Jewish person to be so honored. All of our late presidents and other worthies are also honored by lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda. To see an unruly rabble of President Trump's extremist supporters and others descend on the sacred ground, smash windows, kick in doors, vandalize properties, was especially disturbing. For the president himself to have goaded his assembled supporters to march on the Capitol without a caution to remain peaceful was a dereliction of his duty as president. The ensuing violence and four deaths that resulted, as well as scenes of legislators fleeing the chambers as protesters flooded into the Capitol buildings, is seared in our memories forever. That political action which the crowd took to oppose the certification of President-elect Biden's victory is an ominous escalation of the political rhetoric of the last four years into political violence. We have crossed the Rubicon. Our political discourse will never be the same again. Seeing a bearded man lounging in Speaker Pelosi's office with his feet on her desk was a scene from the Russian Revolution or some other such horror.
January 6, 2021, marks a turning point in American political history, which will change how Americans align politically and how they support political parties and which ones they support. As a result of yesterday's traumatic events, there have been calls to remove President Trump from office for the last 13 days of his term as president, which ends on January 20th, 2021, at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. That is to say, 13 days from today. In today's podcast, we will review the legal mechanism permitted under the Constitution to remove a president from office, namely the 25th Amendment. It was created in 1967. There are four sections to this important amendment regarding presidential succession. The most important of the four for our purposes today is section four of the 25th Amendment. That section has never been activated before. How does it work? Why do we have it? Is it a mechanism and a sanction that President Trump merits because of his involvement in the events on Capitol Hill, January 6, 2021? First, a brief summary of the provisions of the 25th Amendment, which we will analyze in more depth later in this episode. As I said, there are four sections to the 25th Amendment and it is entitled Presidential Vacancy, Disability, and Inability. And the four sections and their contents are as follows. Section 1 stipulates that in the event of a vacancy in the office of president, the vice president assumes the office. Section 2 gives the new president the authority to nominate a new replacement vice president to be confirmed by both houses of Congress. Section three stipulates that the president can temporarily transfer his powers as president to the vice president to be acting president, and then resume his powers as president. And finally, and this is the important section that we're talking about in today's episode, is section four. And Section 4 provides for a majority of the vice president and cabinet members to remove the president from office. And it is the vice president and a majority of cabinet members who would determine that the president is unable to discharge his or her duties as president. In the event that the president were to object to that determination, at that point, the Congress becomes involved and the Congress would have to vote by a two-thirds majority to confirm the action of the acting president. The 25th Amendment 
is an executive action which is only confirmed by both houses of Congress in the event that there is dispute between the president and the acting president. Otherwise, the action is between the president and the acting president in the executive branch. The impeachment process, which is not in play here, is a quasi-judicial process, which of course is a highly politicized one. And it allows for a separate but co-equal branch of government, namely the Congress, to remove the chief executive, the president. The 25th Amendment, as I said earlier, is very different from impeachment because it is all within the members of the executive branch unless there's a dispute. And it's between the president, the vice president, and a majority of the cabinet members. And as I said, if there's a dispute between the president and the acting president, it then goes to Congress for a two-thirds vote. At this point, 13 days before the end of Donald Trump's term in office, that the 25th Amendment would be invoked seems almost superfluous. But media reports state that it is being considered. Of course, that's media reports. It seems highly unlikely to me that Vice President Mike Pence would initiate such a drastic action that did not have a high probability of success. To the extent that President Trump has only 13 days left in office, his ceasing to be President of the United States, in short order, is a self-curing matter. Unrelated to this current crisis, Speaker Pelosi, on October 8, 2020, one month before the presidential election, unveiled legislation to establish a commission under the 25th Amendment to determine the president's fitness for holding office. Now, she did say at the time that this was not directed against President Trump. And the proposed legislation, which is not yet passed, was introduced by Congress member Jamie Raskin of Maryland, and he's been pushing this bill to set up a commission on presidential capacity for some time. Both Pelosi and Raskin, as I said, said that it is not aimed at Trump, but such action and clarification is required by the 25th Amendment, and I would tend to agree with that. As I said, no action has yet been taken, and the bill may or may not be carried over into the next Congress, according to Raskin. So why was the 25th Amendment created in the first place? The cover photo for today's episode shows President Johnson signing the 25th Amendment into law on February 23, 1967. On his extreme left is a young Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana who sponsored the amendment. I worked briefly on Birch Bayh's presidential campaign in 1976. In the middle of the photo is Vice President Hubert Humphrey, whom I met 
in the 1972 McGovern campaign. And on the extreme right of the assembled group, watching President Johnson enact the amendment, is House Speaker John McCormick, who was second in line of presidential succession from November 22, 1963, until January 20, 1965, after the assassination of President Kennedy. In fact, the JFK assassination was a prime mover to enact the 25th Amendment, and it was expedited through the approval process starting in 1965 and had to be approved by all 50 states. And that final approval came at the beginning of February 1967. The chaos surrounding the 1963 assassination of the president underscored the need for clarity in the line of succession to president of the United States. And the gap created in the office of the vice president also needed to be addressed. Initial reports out of Dallas on November 22nd stated that Vice President Johnson, who was riding two cars behind JFK in the motorcade, had also been seriously wounded. The hastily arranged swearing-in of LBJ aboard Air Force One on the tarmac of Love Field involved a rushed call to Bobby Kennedy, who was the Attorney General, to get the wording of the oath of office. And then, having Speaker of the House John McCormick, who was almost 80 years old at the time of the assassination, to be the second in line to the presidency for 14 months, was another accident waiting to happen. And in this era of instant communications, hotlines, hot buttons, nuclear threats, from the Soviet Union, having an uncertain line of succession was a grave risk for this country. There's also a long history of presidential illness being hidden from the public, which the 25th Amendment was meant to address. Most recently, when the late presidents Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush underwent surgery, and they were very open about their surgeries, they temporarily handed over power to their respective vice presidents and immediately resumed power upon successful completion of the medical interventions. Dwight Eisenhower, who suffered a serious heart attack in 1955, wrote a confidential, to, a confidential letter to then Vice President Nixon instructing him to do what to do in the event that Ike did not survive. The instructions were confidential, they were voluntary, and they were written 12 years before the 25th Amendment was enacted in 1967. The most egregious case, of course, of failing health of a president who stubbornly clung to power against the interest of the nation was Woodrow Wilson. He had suffered a series of debilitating strokes after the 1919 Versailles Conference in France. Back at the White House, his wife Edith 
and his physician conspired to keep the real nature of his incapacity from the members of the cabinet. And they kept him closeted away from the cabinet members. Mrs. Wilson effectively served as chief executive of this country for almost 18 months. And there was nothing that the cabinet could do about it. Wilson and his wife Edith steadfastly refused that he consider resigning. Section 2 of the 25th Amendment permits a president to nominate a new replacement vice president subject to Congress's approval. This provision was invoked twice, once in 1973, upon the resignation of Vice President Agnew. President Nixon nominated Congressman Gerald Ford to be the replacement vice president. And then, when President Nixon resigned the presidency in August 1974, Vice President Ford became president, and he himself nominated former New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president. Rockefeller was duly confirmed by Congress, and he served until January 20, 1977. As an anecdote that only a Rockefeller could say, Nelson's wife, Happy Rockefeller, on visiting the palatial vice presidential residence, which is the old Naval Observatory, described it as, quote, a nice little house, unquote. Which brings us back to section four of the amendment. As discussed, this presidential replacement provision has never been invoked. So this is all new territory for us. And the provisions of Section 4 are somewhat complex and a little bit confusing, to say the least. The vice president and a majority of the cabinet are to meet and determine that the president can no longer carry out the duties and the powers of his office because of mental incapacity, physical incapacity, or for some other reason. Those reasons are not stipulated in the amendment itself, so very broad discretion is given to the vice president and a majority of the cabinet in determining that the president can no longer carry out his or her duties. Once the vice president and the majority of the cabinet have so determined that the president can no longer carry out his duties, they must advise the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House that the president is no longer able to discharge the duties and powers of the office. And then the vice president immediately becomes the acting president. Thereafter, if the president disagrees with that determination, the president can then send a letter to the Senate pro tem president 
and to the speaker that he's in perfect control of his faculties, that he is in full, that he's fully capable to discharge his office, and that he shall resume his powers. Of course, we're then in dispute territory, particularly if the vice president and cabinet insist, and that's a majority of the cabinet, we're in dispute territory, especially if the vice president and cabinet insist that the president can no longer discharge his duties. So in the event that there's a dispute between the president and the acting president, then Congress gets to decide the issue. And the amendment sets out the rules regarding that determination. The Congress must meet within 48 hours, and Congress must decide within 21 days whether the president is able to continue to discharge his duties or if the acting president should assume those duties. And the Congress must vote it up or down by a two-thirds majority. As stated earlier, this is an executive action, and it remains solely within the power of the executive, the president, the vice president, the majority of the cabinet, unless there's a dispute between the president and the acting president. Scholars, constitutional scholars, opine that for a vice president and a majority to invoke the 25th Amendment, either a very clear mental or physical disability which prevents the president from discharging his or her duties applies. And it, scholars opine that it must be very clear and very compelling. But the amendment, of course, is silent on such a reason. And in other words, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet technically could invoke the amendment for any reason. I know you're all thinking that just given that vagueness, that such a determination would likely end up before the Supreme Court. So in other words, since Section 4 has never been invoked before, and there's a lot of gray area in Section 4 as regards the power of the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to seize power from the president, 13 days is hardly enough time for such complex and history-making precedents and decisions to be taken. In the case at hand, was President Trump's speech at 11 a.m. on the ellipse on January 6th in Washington, D.C., sufficient incitement to encourage his followers to go to the Capitol and to ransack it? And if it was sufficient incitement, should the president be relieved of his office for having incited the group to do that? Absent precedent for invoking the 25th Amendment, and given the 13 days remaining in his term, they would likely to they would be likely to conclude that it's a murky, unclear area, and why proceed? Has President Trump sounded a conciliatory tone today 
in saying that the transition to the Biden administration will now proceed in an orderly fashion? Is that statement sufficient for Vice President Pence and a majority of the cabinet to opine that he does not constitute a clear and present danger to the orderly functioning of government and that he will discharge his duties in accordance with the oath of office that he took on January 20th, 2017. And what if Donald Trump opts to seek re-election in 2024? There is nothing in the 25th Amendment which is a permanent disqualification from seeking the office of president again. Gone are the days when senior Republican senator statesmen like Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott could visit President Nixon in the White House, as they did in early August 1974, to tell him that he had lost the confidence of the Republican Party and that he must resign. And of course, President Nixon proceeded to resign then on August 4th, in large measure based on that visit from Goldwater and Scott. The last four years of the Trump presidency has been marked by hyper-partisanship. In a town where partisanship is the norm, what we've experienced for the last four years is far beyond anything that I can recall in my observation of politics and the Washington scene. Both sides seem to up the stakes at every possible turn rather than stepping back to be more conciliatory, both sides. The best we can hope for in the last 13 days of the Trump administration is some civil behavior to let the transition proceed to the new Biden administration. If not, will senior members of the administration look to Vice President Mike Pence to informally exercise key leadership roles? It could happen. But the legacy of the Trump presidency is yet to be written. He seems to want a continued role in American politics, and we have to remember that he did garner 74 million votes, and he may be back. My sources for today's podcast include the Constitution Center, Cornell University Law School, Roll Call, and History.com. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, Thank you.